0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. We were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be at church with you. My name's Prash. I'm the senior minister. Uh, If you haven't seen me, maybe because you came in the last couple of weeks, I've been away from Sunday mornings for two weeks, one for a holiday, one week for a holiday, and then the second week for the night church weekend away. So it's good to be back at church with you uh, this Sunday. Let me pray for us, uh, or pray for myself at least, if none else. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds this morning. Presenting us with your word and making us more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, This morning we continue a series started last week and continuing through this month uh, on the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, which is one of Paul's first letters written to the early church. And uh, we've titled it A Church for the Future because much of the book is shaped by the future that God has pr- promised His people, and it's a question of what to expect from God's people in the present as a result. In in our society, one of the things that puts people off uh, God's people and the church is its people. Uh, there was an uh, there was a survey presented by Macrindle uh, last year on the kind of the. Overview of the state of uh, people's attitude to faith in our country. And when I talked about Christianity, of the top 10 things that blocked people off from connecting with Christianity or exploring it more, hearing what Christians had to say was number one, child sex abuse within the church, broadly speaking, and number two, hypocrisy. And these two uh, make sense, actually. They make sense. Because uh, both of those are two great examples of people saying one thing but doing the other. And both of them, particularly the first one, of course, but even the second one, uh, has the capacity to create great harm and damage to people. There is, a, I guess, a prevailing opinion or attitude towards churches now, certainly from mainstream media, and in the minds and hearts of a significant minority of people at least, that the church is filled with people and particularly leaders who do not reflect the things that they say. This is very sad and also a great a great disservice to the word of God. This morning as we open the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, what we actually find is Paul defending himself against the accusations that some of his detractors have made to the Thessalonians about his ministry and about him as a leader. And so much of the passage this morning is Paul actually articulating a vision for Christian leadership, for what the church should expect of its leaders, what the world should expect of its leaders as well. And as we go through particularly the first half of it, what we see is Paul articulating these things that should be expected of his leaders. He says, first of all, in verse 2, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. Paul says, this is the example of church leaders. They're people who suffer for their task. He then goes on into verse 5 and he says, you know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. Church leaders are people who don't act one way in order to achieve something. They're not manipulative. And they certainly don't act for the basis of building up material prosperity. He goes on in verse 9 to say, my clicker is really not working today. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. The leaders of God's church are people who work hard. They work hard for the sake of the gospel. They work hard for the people of God. He then says later in verse 12. Sorry, my clicker is like kaput. Can someone move it along for me? Gordon's standing in the back. He can help you out. Uh, he says, how, you know how bl- righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. He's setting a very high standard for both his own behavior and by implication the behavior of any leader of God's church. Any leader of God's church. And finally in verse 12, he says, next slide please. He says, we in, we were in, our job was to deal with you as children who encouraging you, comforting you, urging you to live a life worthy of the gospel. He was, and God's leaders are people who ultimately work for your spiritual welfare. In order that you might live a life that is worthy of the gospel. He sums it up in the next one. He says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. He says, we are not just people who tell you something, but we are people who live something out in your midst at great cost. If you were to summarize, Paul, here are the three or the, the four words I'd use. You'd say he was a deeply honest man. He was a, he was a hardworking man at great cost. Great cost to himself, not just financially, emotionally, physically. He was spiritually focused. He's a man of great integrity, Paul. And he says that is the vision, that is the kind of bar that's set for the leaders of God's church. And and he does this not on the basis. See, God could have said, he said, this is what the leaders of God's church are, X, Y, Z. These are the things, these are the principles that they're meant to live by. But Paul says this, if you flick to the next slide, he keeps using this phrase throughout the first half of, the, of this passage. As you know, in verse 9 it's translated, you remember. But it's the same kind of concept, right? And Paul is saying, look back at my life. My life is a contention to this this is the kind of leader that I am, this is the kind of leader you should expect, this is the kind of leader the church should expect, the world should expect of God's leadership, are these kind of people. They're people who are gentle. I love the image he uses of being a mother, nursing a child. Motherhood has different stages. A mother of a teenager is different to a mother of a newborn. Uh, A teenager, there's a bit more structure and uh, discipline. But a newborn, you are just completely gentle with this child. There's a vulnerability to them. And so God's leaders are so meant to be of that kind of gentle nature. And he says, as you know, that's what I was. And it is. I mean, in Acts, Luke recounts the story of the early church. In Acts 17, he tells of Paul's encounter with the Thessalonians. He'd just come from Philippi where he'd been beaten. Luke kind of glosses over it, but effectively we are saying is Paul had been tortured in Philippi for his his ministry, for the sake of preaching the gospel. He was tortured in Philippi. Eventually released, he goes to Thessalonica. And there he's threatened with his own life and so chased out of town. Paul says, my life has testified to this high standard. This is the kind of leader I am. This is the kind of leader you should expect. And he sums it all up because in the end, Paul has a realization of his true identity as a leader of God's people, and it's this in verse 7. He says, instead, uh, next slide, please. Instead, we were like young children among you. You know, Paul's time in Greece, and even in Hebrew culture, the teacher was a very revered position in Greek culture. You know, the, the, the ph- philosophers, everyone gathered around to hear what they had to say. They sat at their feet and they listened. If you were in Hebrew culture, if you were a rabbi, you were one of the most esteemed people in their culture. The disciples, when they want to affirm Jesus, one of the ways they affirm him is by calling him rabbi because it's such a, such a profound place of power and responsibility in, in the Hebrew culture. And Paul says, Paul would be allowed, he is that person. And yet he thinks of himself not just as a child, he says, but as a young child. As a young child. We had all this great gathering of young children here at the front. Paul says, as a leader, I am with them. I'm with them. That's how I see myself, he says. And this means that you have some, you have, I want to affirm what your expectations are. Actually, in, in the belonging course, if you haven't done it, here's a plug for the belonging course, you should do it. At the end of the course, we talk about expectations. Expectations of, of members of the church, which we'll get to in a moment, but expectations of the leadership. What can you expect of your leaders? Now, of course, that means me. So everything I've said applies to me. It means your ministry team. It also probably means like the other leaders in various ministries you your gap group leaders, your ministry team leaders. These are the things you should expect of them. All right? And we have these expectations. And it's the, the church is not just about telling you what you need to do. Us as leaders have very clear expectations. We are to be people... Sorry, just go back to the previous slide for the moment. Thanks. We are to be young children. We're meant to be gentle. You, you have a right to expect that we will be hard working. The church doesn't exist for us. It doesn't exist to give us a vocation. It doesn't exist to give us a calling or a purpose in life. We are here to serve the church of God. We're here to work hard for you, to labour for you. I, um, I think there is a trend now in ministry circles of young pastors, women and men, believing that, Going into ministry is an extension of their own kind of desires and life purpose, as if it 's somehow meant to serve them, but the primary dynamic in scripture is that we I am here to serve you to work hard for you and for the gospel. but it is important I remember being in a congregation where i 'm um, there's a young adult congregation, and, and one of the mums in the congregation, whose child came came to me one day and said, Frash, my daughter is going out with a non-Christian. Can you find a good Christian boy for her? I'm not in the dating business. Some of you will breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not in the dating business. I'm not, in the, I'm not even really, actually, to be honest, I'm not in the relationship like establishing business, I'm not a social agency. That's not, that's not my job. My job is to encourage, comfort, and urge you to live a life worthy of the gospel. I'm here about stirring you to spiritual maturity, to be more like Christ, and I'm here to spend myself for you, to burn myself, not out, but sometimes close to it, for you. To work very hard, to suffer for you, because that's what the calling is of God's leaders, It's actually what your ministry team is here for. They work very hard. Someone says, oh, you work your team pretty hard. It's not my team, for starters. But they want to do that because that's actually what it is to serve God's church. And that's the standard that Paul's setting here. And it's what you should expect of those who serve you in leadership, whether it is your wardens, whether it's your parish council, whether it's your uh, gap group leaders, whether it's your ministry team leaders, whether it's your ministry team, whether it's me. It's what you should expect of us. Because actually that's what it is to be someone of integrity in light of the gospel. That's what it is to be a real leader of, the, of God's church. But what's interesting is that's not where Paul stops because a church that has integrity, that's led by people of integrity, is a church that reflects those leaders Paul will say in another part of his writings, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There is an imitation here, and you see it even in this passage, because the second half of it, he switches from his ministry to what the Thessalonians are doing. And, I mean, the Thessalonians are are really a very vibrant church in New Testament times, and they are a church that has a great level of integrity, and this is what Paul rejoices over, because he says the church, you see, uh, and this is the next slide, thanks, Wilson, the church has expectations too. It is not just to expect something of its leaders, but of them. And I think you could summarise these expectations with three S's. First of all, to suffer. Sorry, first of all, to submit. Second, to suffer. And third, to speak. To submit, to suffer, and to speak. So, in verse 13, sorry because I don't have control of my slides this morning. Verse 13, it says... Paul's, Paul affirms them, he says, uh, we thank God continually for you. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. You see what they're doing there? They are not just saying, and there is a tendency in our society to say, oh, we expect our leaders to be servant-hearted, but we will stand in judgment of them, right? if our... Prime Minister doesn't fulfill our, our agenda, we stand in judgment of it. But not in the church, interestingly. Your churches are to serve you, but the requirement of God's people is also to submit to their teaching to the extent that it is the word of God. And that's what the Thessalonians do. They don't receive Paul's teaching as a word of man. They receive it with the authority that it comes with because it's the word of God, it's the gospel. And so they willingly submit to Paul. Secondly, verse 14, he says, uh, next slide, please. He says, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered. See, it's not just that Paul or that the other uh, apostles or the leaders of the church will suffer for taking on the mantle of being leaders. It's that God's people as a whole will suffer. They will willingly suffer for the gospel at times. They will endure hardship. And that's what the Thessalonians did. You know, you want to be a person of integrity as a Christian. You can't live a life without suffering. You want to be a person of integrity? You can't live a life without suffering. You can't live an easy life and be a person of integrity. You can't do it. You can live an easy life, but you can't have integrity. Not if you're a Christian. The reoccurring theme of the New Testament is it will be hard to follow Jesus in this day and age. It will be. Anyone told you differently? They lied to you. Thirdly, he says, one of the reasons they suffer is because they are constantly, verse 16, next slide please, Wilson. They say, in their effort to keep us from speaking the Gentiles, they persecute them because the Thessalonians, like Paul, are committed to the task of sharing the gospel with the world. The Gentiles are non-Jews. They're committed to doing this, and so therefore they get persecuted. Therefore, they encounter hardship. But again, if you want to be a person of God with integrity, it is to have a commitment to sharing the gospel with those who haven't heard it. You can't receive the gospel and then say, "I'm going to hunker down. It's just for me." You haven't heard it truly. It hasn't affected you. Your your Confession isn't a confession that has resulted in a life of integrity. And so actually, this is a very challenging passage for me to read as a leader, but it's also a challenging passage for us to read just as members of God's church. We're called to submit, we're called to suffer, we're called to speak the gospel. That's what it looks like to be a church. And you know what? Doesn't the world need a church that has great integrity? Isn't it great? Wouldn't it be great if instead of them saying, oh, the church is meant to be generous, but it's really just filled with rich people. Wouldn't it be great if they said, "The church is instead of the church saying, it's meant to be open, but actually I feel like I'm never welcome. Wouldn't it be better actually if they said, that is a place of deep generosity. That's a place of ready welcome. That's a place of people who are willing to stand for what they believe in, even though it costs them. That's a picture of, a church of great integrity that 's a church for the future that 's a church for the future in our belonging course, we have these two images, and we say to ourselves, if you could flick to the next slide, please, we have these two images. we say, the church is not a lifeboat it, uh, sorry the church is not a le- uh, 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 the church is not a uh, what 's the word cruise boat cruise ship it 's a lifeboat. thank you. I say it so often I'm, it's become white noise to me. It's not a cruise ship. You know what a cruise ship happens? When you go on a cruise ship, you get on, you paid your ticket, you sit on your banana lounge, someone brings you a pina colada, right? My job is not to bring you pina coladas. There can be a tendency to think, you've come here, you put your money in the offer tree, the clergy will do the job. But what Paul is articulating here is a very clear partnership between those who might be paid to do ministry and those who just are meant to live out the gospel in their life, between himself and the Thessalonians. A very clear partnership because the constant vision of the Scriptures is that we are better together in the task that God has given us. It is not enough to simply pay for someone to do ministry and therefore wash your hands of it. It is not enough to pay for a minister so that they will curate an experience of church that suits you. It is To live with integrity is to invest in gospel ministry for the sake of other people, for the glory of God. And that's why we say it's a lifeboat, because I'm in the boat with you as someone who's been pulled out of the ocean. And there is no space in the lifeboat for someone to kick back and say, hey, let me know when we get to dry ground. We're all in this together. And that's the vision that Paul's painting. And I think when people encounter churches, and there's a lot of people who really understand this at St. Stephen's, and it is really interesting when we have people visit our church, they often comment not on the preaching. They don't comment on the quality of the staff immediately. What they comment on is the welcome and the hospitality and the care and the ministry of God's people. That is what a vibrant church in Paul's mind is. Now, if you're new and you're still kind of getting your head around this, welcome to St. Stephen's. But see the vision of the church that God is curating for himself. This place where there's this great partnership both between the leadership and between the people of God. And both live with integrity. Live with integrity. Of course... To talk about integrity is very inspiring. To live it out is a whole other thing. It's one thing to say, yeah, I want to be a person of integrity. I like that. I like that vision of myself. I want to be that. But actually to be someone who's got integrity is a whole other thing. It's very, very difficult. And Paul gives us a couple of reasons why in his passage. He negates a couple of things. And it's out of actually negating these things that he can live his life of integrity. He can do his ministry of integrity. Look what he says in verse 4 and verse 6. First of all, he says in verse 4, we're not trying to please people but God. It's the verse that people used. We're not trying to please people but God. And then in case we missed it, or the Thessalonians missed it in the first place, he repeats it again in a slightly different way. Verse 6, he says, we're not looking for the praise from people. You see, the thing that seems to subvert us in integrity is the voice of other people. It's the praise of people. It's it's only when Paul can become almost deaf to the the praise of others that he can actually live with integrity. And this this is very important. As a leader, you know what? Pastors live for the praise of their people. Pastors live for the praise of their people. Most of us. Most of us live to be praised by people. Here's what one author says. He writes in his book, church leaders, next slide, please. church leaders, specifically paid church leaders, are also prone to worship human approval because our job security is intricately tied to it. If our congregations love us, our jobs are secure. If not, we may be on our way out. There's something sobering but true about that. Pastors uh, have to hear God's word. We, as his leaders, have to hear this. We have, we, we have the tendency to live for the praise of the people of God. It's, it's interesting. It's not just a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah says what makes a false prophet is someone who says, peace, peace, when God's word to Jerusalem at the time is judgment. It's easier to say peace. It's easier to flatter, says Paul. It's easier to just puff people up. You're great. You're fine. You're doing good. How great are you? But sometimes the challenge is to bring the word of God to people, which challenges. And if we are listening to the word of women and men, then we are less likely to, to speak the word of God. But it's not just pastors. It's also just everyday Christians. Because what Paul is saying here is that there are voices both inside and outside the church. And those voices, if we hear them too loudly, they will distract us from a life of integrity. Uh, Next slide, please. Outside. You know, the praise of people is what kills evangelism. It's what kills your ability to share your faith with other people the praise of people. I don't think there's anything more toxic to sharing your faith than the opinion of other people, especially in Australia, because we don't have like anti-conversion laws yet in our country. So really, the only thing that's often stopping us from sharing our faith is the opinion of someone else. Rico Tice, maybe you know him. He's an English um, theologian, minister. He used to be um, a uh, rugby union player for England before they were good. Um, and he became a minister when he became a Christian. He is like a, he is a full-on evangelist. If you've ever done the Hope Explored course, he's the guy who's the, the face of the Hope Explored course or Christianity Explored. He's the same guy. Okay, This is a real evangelist. Evangelism runs through his blood. But he retells in his book on evangelism this moment when his grandmother is sick and she's not a believer. She's on her deathbed. And he has the opportunity to share his faith with her. And you know what? He doesn't. He doesn't do it. And he writes this very uh, very helpful introspection in his book, if you wouldn't mind flicking across the next slide. He says, why didn't I tell her about Christ? I've come to realize that I was afraid of what she'd say. And I was afraid of what my family would say because I knew they'd think it was inappropriate and unhelpful. You know, the people, sometimes the people you, you care about most are the people you find it hardest to share your faith with. I know in our congregations, most households have at least one non-Christian in their family. But sometimes they're the hardest person to share the gospel with. Because like Rico, we are concerned about their We're concerned about it. It's not obviously universal. This is not everyone's problem. But for a lot of us, this is true. This is someone we love deeply. We are someone who believes that the gospel is the only way to be right with God. And yet we can't cross that divide, can we? Because the approval of other people is so strong and it kills evangelism. But it's not just the approval of the words outside. It's also the approval, interestingly, of words inside our church. Next slide, please. You know, the words outside might say, my way is best. Don't tell me what to do. Or there's no right way. You know, like, don't be intolerant, etc. That's That's the stuff that might kill evangelism. But actually, interestingly, inside the church can kill your integrity as well. You know, words like how kind you are, how servant hearted, how generous you are, those things can kill your integrity. So you can come to church just to get people to say that to you. You can be generous just to get people to say that to you. You can serve just to get people to say that to you. On the outside, You look kind. You look generous. On the inside, you're selfish. Paul says, we don't come to you with impure motives. Motives matter, people. And you might have come to St. Stephen's your whole life, but deep down your motive has always been about yourself. And that, I have to say, is not a life of integrity. It's not a life of integrity. And you'll be kidding all of us. We won't be able to see it. I don't know who it is. But God does. And Paul says, he wants pe- God wants people of integrity, right? And what you do on the outside has to cohere with what's happening on the inside. It's really interesting, isn't it? If you flick to the next slide, there's a bunch of questions here. Whose approval do I crave most? Whose praise am I most desperate not to lose? In whose presence do I fear most being shamed? Which relationship is most precious to you or to me? I wonder how you'd answer those things individually. Here's my insight for you. Whoever's name or identity is the answer to those questions, is probably the most likely person to kill your integrity. It could be your child. It could be your parent. It could be your boss. It could be your minister. It could be your Bible study. If you are living for their praise, if you're living for their approval, you're either living for yourself or you're living for some other false god. You're not living for God himself, and you're not, you're not loving them for them. You're loving them for yourself. Approval kills integrity. The word of man or woman, the word of your family, the word of your peers, it will kill your integrity as a Christian But here is the the good news. There is another way to do life. There is another way to do it. Here's what Paul says, because this is how he does a life of integrity. Verse 4, next slide. He says, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God. See, the way you do integrity is you will find your approval not from the word of the world, or from your sibling, or your neighbour, or your child. You find your approval from God. Paul has deep roots in the Gospel. And the Gospel is this great affirmation, proclamation, declaration that in Jesus Christ you have the opportunity to be approved by God. To be approved by Him. And only if you know that will you ever be able to live a life of integrity. Otherwise, you're faking it. You might kid me, but you won't kid God. But here's what he says. Approval means something. There's two things. First of all, it means the glory, and second, it means the grace. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says that part of his task is to urge them to live lives worthy of God. Who is God? He's the one who calls them into his kingdom and his glory. See, the gospel is the story, is the declaration, is the news that God is calling you to share his glory, to share his glory. I've been watching on Netflix the um, documentary about David Beckham and there's this point where they tell the story of Beckham takes his team, LA Galaxy, to the White House. They get invited because they win the competition and there's the president, President Obama, but what really struck me about it is there's David Beckham, probably like second or third best wealthiest footballer in the world at the time. He's 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 kind of very important to the whole presentation, but there's one person who's far more important and it's the president of the United States. And he's up the front and David Beckham is up the back and none of the two shall meet. There's never a moment where Beckham comes and stands next to him and they kind of chat together. It's always the president who's the main, the main guy. God says, that's always how it operates, right? Presidents don't share their glory, but God says, I'm going to share my glory with you. I'm going to invite you up onto the stage with me. And you're going to share it with me. Even though you don't deserve it, you're going to get it. That's what I've called you into. I've called you, the Thessalonians, I've called you, St. Stephen's, to share my glory. But the gospel is more than you just get, it's it's the way you get to share his glory. Paul says the reason that the Thessalonians suffer is verse 15, because ultimately Jesus first suffered. And it's a reminder that the source of the gospel is the suffering of Christ we are assured that we will share the glory of God because Christ gave up that glory. Because in the cross, Jesus went to it and died as a man without any approval from God or man. See, when he goes to the cross, God doesn't even look at Jesus at a moment and say, oh, look at him, at least he's doing my will. At that moment, there is no answer to Jesus when he calls out. Because he's bearing the sin of the whole world, including yours, including mine. But when you understand that, that is the doorway to full assurance that God loves you, that he treasures you, that he, he, like, he likes you. Jesus says, Those who are mine, I call friends, not colleagues, not servants, but friends primarily. He treasures you. He wants you next to him. He wants you to bask in his glory for his radiance to shine on you. Such is your approval. Such is your value in his eyes. And that's all that Paul needs. In the end, that's all he needs for him to step out. And you know, ministry, the church built on the approval of the gospel is not without effect. What does he say in verse 1? We came to you, and our ministry was not without results. People who hear the gospel for what it really is are changed, transformed, renewed. They are freed from the power of other people's words. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us a rich and deep understanding of the approval we find because Christ suffered for us. In Jesus' name,
0: Amen.